when Leighton, our youngest son, uh, was in elementary school, we lived in the Hampton Roads area in Virginia. And Virginia is a lot like Texas to me. There's a lot of great pride and a lot of history. And uh, for some reason, Ashley was unable to go, so I accompanied Leighton on his elementary school field trip to the historic St. John's Church, Episcopal Church there in Richmond, Virginia. And it was a great day. We had a wonderful time, so many sights to see in historic Virginia. But I remember when we went and sat, or at least looked at, the church there. That was the church on March the 23rd, 1775, that Patrick Henry stood up in that church and delivered uh, his now very famous speech. Men such as George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were sitting in that very room, in that very church, as we were on the cusp, we were on the eve of the, uh, the, our fight for independence, the revolution. Of course, Patrick Henry was a great orator, a great um, a gifted lawyer. He also became the first governor of Virginia, but that's not why we know Patrick Henry, is it not? We know Patrick Henry because he had those famous words when he said, give me liberty or give me death. I was looking through that message this week. I know I'm kind of strange. I like uh, history. I love reading uh, these historic documents. And as I read his message that day in church, it reminded me a lot of the message that I'm going to preach to you today from the book of Peter, 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through uh, 11. If you have your Bibles, go ahead, and as you're turning there, I'll read a little excerpt from his historic message that he preached. And there are two lines in particular uh, that I will accentuate and highlight today because they remind me so much of another bold patriot uh, for his faith, and that was the Apostle Peter. Listen to some of these words, and how many times... Patrick Henry referred to the Lord God Almighty uh, in this historic speech, which many believe catapulted us into the revolution and gave us fervor and gave us confidence that we could indeed, with men like Washington and men like Jefferson, we could overcome. Should I keep back my opinions at such a time through fear or giving offense, I should consider myself as guilty of treason toward my country and of an act of disloyalty toward the majesty of heaven, capitalized, by the way, majesty of heaven, which I revere above all earthly kings. We are apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth and listen to the song of that siren till she transforms us into beast. I know of no way of judging of the future but by the past. Please remember that line. I know of no other way of judging the future except for what has happened in the past. We must fight. I repeat it, sir, we must fight. An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left to us. We are not weak if we make a proper use of those means which God of nature, the God of nature, hath placed in our power. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God. They were not afraid, by the way, to use God's name. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations, and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable, and let it come. I repeat, sir, let it come. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased 
at the price of chains and slavery. Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, come on, give me liberty or give me death. Wow. Now that is a patriotic, powerful message delivered in church March the 23rd, 1775. You know, patriots have a way of speaking the truth, come what may. The two lines that reminded me so much of our text today were these two lines where he said, we are apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth. In other words, if it's difficult, we are inclined, we have an inclination to say, let's not talk about that. Or, I I know the British are coming, I know they're breathing down our neck, I know we're all about to be put into chains and slavery, but I don't want to think about that. Let's don't think about that. And he says, we're apt to do that. Just because it's hard, we turn our eyes away from it. The second line that he gave was this one, I know of no way of judging of the future, but by the past. And what he was talking about in its original context is, look what England has done to us over these years. Just look up to Boston, to the north, and you will see, based on what they've done in the past, we are guaranteed that they're going to continue to do this in the future. So, as you have your Bibles open today, I want you to keep those two thoughts in mind as we read a difficult, difficult text. This is a text about judgment. But it's not only a text about judgment. Uh, Felix Daly, thank you so much. Payday Sunday. It does remind us of that famous sermon by R.G. Lee, but he says there's not only judgment, but there's also deliverance. And before I read the text, let me give this disclaimer, this little caveat before we have the public reading of God's Word, that when I read this, think of it this way as a syllogism. There is an if clause, and it is followed by a then clause, okay? If such and such happens, A, B, C, or such and such has happened, past tense, then rest assured that this will happen. I know of no other way of judging the future except by looking at the past. Now, when I read this text to you today, um, please resist the temptation to try to understand it all at one sitting. I don't think you're going to be able to, okay? That's why I just love this time. One one time a week I get to preach God's Word and to share with you and to teach you what I believe the Scriptures are, are teaching us. So let's read the Scriptures together. It says, for if, that's a big statement now, if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down into hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And if God did not spare the ancient world but saved Noah... One of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And if God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul, from day to day, by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then, you following? If God judged the angels, if God judged the antediluvian people, which is the pre-flood people, and if God judged those awful cities, then rest assured, based on what He has done in the past, rest assured that God will do the same in the future. Then, verse 9, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust 
under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh, in the lust of uncleanness, and they despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak of, uh, the, the Greek word there is doxy. They're not afraid to speak of dignitaries. I translate that to mean they're not afraid to speak evil of angels. Whereas these angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling against them before the Lord. Now, that is an intense passage, is it not? And some of you are looking at me like, why in the world on an August 11th, 2013, would you try to tackle such a text? Well, here's why. Because we are, at Great Hills, we, we believe in preaching the whole Bible. As antiquated and as outdated and dinosauric as that sounds, we, we want to preach the Bible verse by verse. And I love verses like this because it forces us to grapple not only with difficult issues, but also with these difficult uh, texts. So what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through, the first point is, God does judge indeed, but secondly, God does deliver. And so today, I want you to open your hearts and open your minds as we walk through this passage of Scripture, and it's not an easy text, but I'm so grateful to God today that we get a chance to study His Word. So first of all, God judges uh, the wicked. If you'll notice with me in the text, He lists three specific examples in the past, watch this, all of them are from the book of beginnings, and that book is called what? Somebody help me. The book of Genesis. You know, it's amazing to me, and, and we're gearing up, by the way, come January, we're going to preach verse by verse through the book of Revelation. We're going to go through the great apocalypse, and amen, we're going to do that. That's going to be fun. And so, when we do that, the writer John, just like Peter, presupposes that you have a thorough understanding and working knowledge of the antecedent of the New Testament, and that is the Old. And if you don't have a firm grasp of the Old Testament, then you're going to have to do some research to ramp up and to get ready for the, just for the unloading of knowledge that God will present in the New Testament. And here, here, here's what he says. God judged the fallen angels. He judged the ancient peoples. And number three, he judged those awful cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So rest assured, you false prophets and you false teachers who live and operate today, God will judge you. Now that is really the basics, the basic premise and thesis of this whole sermon today. Since or if God did that then, then rest assured, God has not changed. His nature has not changed. He is still just he is still holy, He is still awesome, He is still righteous, and just because God is awesome, just, righteous, pure, and holy, and will judge, that is no reason to turn a deaf ear because it's a hard saying. Did, did you get that? Did you get Patrick Henry's warning? Just because it's hard to hear does not mean it's not true. It could very well mean that it is absolutely, unequivocally true. So let's look first of all, who are these fallen angels, number one? Well, there are two primary interpretations that Peter has in mind, and I'll give you both of them, and I'll also, like I'm going to do in systematic theology in the fall, I'm going to tell you what everybody else believes, and I'm also going to step out there and tell you what I believe. And if you don't agree with it, that's absolutely okay. You have the right to be wrong anytime you, you want to. No, I'm just kidding. You know I'm kidding. So who are these fallen angels? There are two primary interpretations. Number one, it is referring to that pre-cosmic fall of Satan and his angels when they fell according to 
these texts, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, Revelation 12. That is the pre-cosmic fall of Satan and the third, remember Revelation says a third of the angels fell with him, and that is exhibit A. Number two, the second interpretation is, no, it refers, just like the other examples, it refers to something in the book of Genesis. And I, I agree with this interpretation, that what Peter is referring to is the same thing that Genesis 6 and the book of Jude refer to, and it is the fall of these sons of God, these angels. Let me read it to you briefly. In Genesis chapter 6, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were very beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all of whom they chose. Now remember, this is the pre-flood era. And during this pre-flood era, the flood's coming in Genesis 7. These sons of God, these angelic beings, somehow cohabitated with these beautiful women and these giants, these offspring, uh, were, were born or procreated. And it's the same thing that Jude says in verse 6. Let me read this to you. It says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So Jude and Peter and Moses are all basically saying the same thing. God judged those angelic beings. And it's interesting in verse 4 where it says, he sent them to, look at your, look at your Bible in verse 4, it says, he cast them down to Tartarus. Watched Percy Jackson yesterday. And, uh, you know, you, you can watch movies. you just got to sit in the right place and elevate your foot. It can be done. And they talked about Tartarus. And I don't know if you've seen the movie yet or not, but it's Tartarus. That's the same Greek word that is used here in this text. By the way, the only time that Greek word, noun for hell, is used in the entire New Testament is right here. And he says, God has reserved these angels in Tartarus. And to define it, it means a prison or a custody a gloomy dungeon of a place where the fallen angels are incarcerated until the final judgment. Think of it like this. Someone is accused, all the evidence is against them, of murder. And they are placed on death row. And their execution, their day of judgment is coming, but it is delayed through whatever process, and that's what we have here. These fallen angels... God has judged them, they are in Tartarus, and one day in Revelation 20, they will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. So number one, or exhibit A, are these fallen angels. And it also says they are, they are in chains. Did you see that in verse 4? This is an interesting word. They are delivered, God delivered them into the seroi. This word is translated pit, but it also had this initial meaning, a jar where you store grain. I don't know how many of y'all are farmers, but this word silo is where we get that word silo is from this word serios. It means a storage place, a container where you place something. So here's Peter's argument. God judged the angels. Come on now. He's going to judge you. You false teachers. Now remember, if you're just joining us in our study of, of 2 Peter, the, the background goes like this. There were a group of false teachers and false prophets and they were proliferating their venomous doctrine. 
They were saying, oh, Jesus really isn't coming again. All that judgment, all that stuff, don't worry about that. Just eat, drink, and be merry. And let's just remember God's forgiven us all, and we're all going to heaven. Don't worry about judgment. And by the way, if it feels good, even sexuality, sex outside your marital parameters, that's okay. If it feels good, then go do that. Because we're all forgiven, Jesus loves us all, and we're all going to heaven. Whoopee! So let's just go have fun. That's what was going on in the early church. Only 30 years removed from Jesus himself and that antinomian doctrine had already been polluting the early church. I know that's a fancy word, and I use that word a lot in my teaching, but if you're the first time you guessed here, antinomianism means, anti means against, and nomos in Greek is law. It means against the law. Don't worry about the laws of God. There is no great judgment. There is none of that. Don't worry about that. And Peter says, let me tell you something. If God judged the angels, he will judge you. Number two, he judged the ancient world. Now, this takes us directly to Genesis chapter 7. In fact, he says, and God, and, and God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now, Dr. Henry Morris, who brilliant scientist, uh, professor of science at Virginia Tech University for 20 plus years. I think he was the chief of their engineering department. He was a brilliant man who believed that God's Word got it right, that there was a catastrophic global flood that destroyed the world. Now, can you imagine Virginia Tech chair of the Department of Engineering teaching that the Bible is right and a lot of what can be explained through what people say millions and millions of years could really be explained through a powerful catastrophic flood in which, listen to this, Dr. Morris said there were 7 billion people on planet earth in Genesis chapter 7, and God killed them all. <laughs> he killed them all, except eight. Noah, his wife, the three sons, and their wives. You say, well, my land, how in the world could you ever believe? How in the world could you ever believe in a deity like that? You don't really believe. Listen, Jesus believed that. He said, Jesus didn't believe that. Jesus is the God of love. That God in the Old Testament is some mean, mean character, said Marcion the heretic. No, no, no. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 37. He said, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, Jesus believed in a flood. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. This is Jesus speaking, okay? And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Yes, it's true. God is a just God. He is a holy God. Now, the reason God does these things, only God really knows, but I have a hint of knowing, and it's because God takes sin so much more seriously than we do, especially in our evangelical 21st century American Christianity. We don't take sin very seriously. That's why we look at a passage like that and say, well, I don't really know if God really did that after all. No, no, we begin to judge God instead of allowing God to judge us. And Patrick Henry's right, just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not true. And so he says, and here's his argument, if God judged the whole world, killed 7,999,999,000, you get it, 
and spared only Noah and his sons and his daughters-in-law, then you rest assured, not only you false prophets and not only you false teachers in, in Peter's day, but everybody listening to this text, know this please, that God is just, God is holy, God is righteous, and God will judge. You say, man, I didn't know people still believe, especially in Austin in the erudite intellectual epicenter of the state of Texas. I mean, really, people don't believe in that garbage, do they? Do they really believe that there's a God who would judge me because I sin and I rebel against Him and I turn my nose up at Him? That's exactly right. God does judge. And here's another example. In case you're not encouraged, let me encourage you with this. I call them awful cities. And we're about to get extremely politically and religiously incorrect, okay? And it says in verse 6, And God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. And it goes on to say that these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are described biblically in the following adjectival ways. They are ungodly people, filthy people, wicked people, and lawless people. You say, well, who are you talking about? I'm talking about the inhabitants of Sodom. In fact, we have a word for that in English today. It's called sodomy. Sodomy, Webster says, is the unnatural coming together of two men. What does God think about that? I think, I think you already know that. But why think God created those people like that? Why would God create somebody like that and then say, don't do that, and 22 times in Scripture refer to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Genesis 19, 5 through 7 says this, And these men, the people of Sodom, called to Lot, and they said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally, so that we as men may rape and have sex with these men, Lot, that you are hiding in your house. So Lot went out to them through the doorway. He shut the door behind him. Look at this. And he said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. Not alternative, not you were born that way. It's, the Bible says lawless, wicked, filthy, ungodly, and that's what the Scripture says about it. Oh, but Brother Danny, you're a racist. You're a horrible, hateful individual if you really believe that God says that is wrong and God will judge that. I just want you all to know something. long time ago, I decided way, way back when that I was going to believe the Bible. And if I believe the Bible, then I have to say homosexuality is a sin. It is wrong. It will be judged by God. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. God loves those people. And God desires them just like your heterosexual promiscuity that some of you are getting involved in even now. That is just as wrong as homosexual sin. And sin is sin. Some of the repercussions, ramifications for some sins are greater than others. But God judges this and all sin. And Peter's point is powerful. In verse 6 he says, He turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, and he catastrophed them. Look at your Bibles in verse 6. The Greek word condemned is catastrophe. Obviously it's where we get our English word, a catastrophe. And Peter's point is absolutely pristine, inexorably clear. We would have to bury our heads in the sand to not get it. If God did this in the past and God's nature has not changed, then God will judge today and God will judge in the future. And he gives one more example. 
And I've just included verses 9 through 11 as all the unjust. All the unjust in verse 9 says God will judge them. In verse 9, that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Now, I want us to stop here for just a minute and think about this. God says in his Bible, he's either lying, he's delusional, he's a masochist, or, or I mean, all of that, or God really loves us and he's warning us going, listen, I'm telling you the truth, I love you and I will judge you, okay? I believe it's the latter. I believe God is saying, listen, you are going to be judged for your sins. Everybody has to be judged. Here's the catch, though. You can be judged for your sins for eternity, forever in hell, and atone for your sins. Or you can go to the cross and let God judge your sins through his sacrifice. You see, your sins will be atoned. All of your dastardly deeds will be accounted for either by you in eternity in hell or by God on the cross. And I just want you all to know something. If you don't know Christ, and in this day and age in which we live, which we are rushing toward hell as quickly as, as we can as a nation, if I were you and if I were not already a Christian, I'm telling you I would let no time elapse and I would run to the cross. I would run to God and say, oh God, have mercy on my soul. Oh Lord, I know I am a sinner, and I know I need your forgiveness. And so God, I cast myself upon the mercy of Almighty God. Oh God, before it's too late, will you forgive me of my sins? And God will say, absolutely. I forgive you. I would much rather forgive you than judge you. Can I say that again? I would much rather forgive you, thus saith the Lord, than to judge you. One writer put it this way, the angels... The flood generation, Sodom, Gomorrah, they were not judged immediately. Did you notice? They pursued their sin for some time before that faithful day. Hence, Peter's readers were not to be discouraged or wonder if God is faithful simply because the false teachers were prospering. What was happening is God was giving them time to repent before the end arrives. I was reading Charles Haddon Spurgeon this, this week, and he was the prince of preachers. And uh, Let me sit down. Oh, I don't weigh a lot, but 150 pounds on one leg is not fun. All right, let me put this leg up. Um, why am I putting this leg? This is the one that's hurting. What in the world? Let me put this leg up. Scoop my little foot in there. Oh, that's glorious. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he, he preached the Bible. And they had like 12,000 people every Sunday pack the place, place out in London. He was the pastor there for 30 years. And he said, I know people don't want to hear about judgment. But you know what? If we don't talk about it, who will? He said, it would be like a man in my day and age going to an inn. Now, they called the hotels the inns back then. He said, it would be like, and, and by the way, this is why Spurgeon was so awesome. Because he could take deep truths and he could give these antidotal illustrious stories, and, and the light would come on. You'd say, oh, I get that. I understand that. Therefore, I can get this. He said, it'd be like a man who came into a town. He went into the inn. He said, give me my wine, give me my food, and give me my bed. And the innkeeper said, absolutely. Here's your wine. Here's your food. Here's your bed. And sleep. And, uh, and, and tomorrow we'll settle up. Well, he stays there for a week and gets up and says, well, it's been great. I think I'll head on home without paying. And Spurgeon says, the innkeeper says, are you a fool or a knave? What in, the, what in the world are you thinking? 
You are accountable to me, and you must give an account. And that's what Spurgeon, when he said these words, they live their lives, they eat, they drink, they sin, and they forget the inevitable hereafter that God will indeed judge. Now, I'm going to wrap this part up because I know it's intense, but I want to look at verses 10 and 11 with you. And then we're going to transition into God being a delivering God. Amen. Okay, verses 9, 10, and 11. He's talking about these false prophets, these false teachers, and God's going to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And it says in verse 10, especially those... Are you there in verse 10? That's where I am. That's why it's good to bring your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, bring your iPad. Bring your whole computer if you need to. It doesn't bother me. Just bring a Bible, okay? Because you need it. Because there's a lot of stuff in here that you're going to need to write down unless you've got a photographic crazy kind of memory, okay? Because this is so important. Then in verse 10, he says, And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of their uncleanness, and they despise... Curiatos. When he uses that word curiatos, it's the root word curios, which is a reference to the Lord. These people, they indulge their flesh, they despise Christ's authority. They are, he says, presumptuous. Another word for that is audacious. And they lack reverence for God, and they are dominated by autodeus. Auto, Greek, auto is self. Deus, please. They are self pleasing. Now look at verse 10. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Now I think the context of this would allow us to say these dignitaries or these glorious ones are these fallen angels or these demonic beings. And these false prophets, watch this. These false teachers are so audacious and so presumptuous, they even cast doubt on even if they're are demonic beings. They are self-willed, and they are so arrogant. And, and I like the way one writer put it. He says, perhaps these teachers did not even tremble before these evil beings because they didn't even believe in their existence. Maybe they just ridiculed any idea that human beings should be frightened about the power of these spiritual beings. Others suggest that the teachers ridiculed the notion that their sins would make them prey of evil angels. By way of contrast, listen carefully. Good angels do not even dare declare God's judgment against evil angels. And you'll read this in the book of Jude. They leave that with the Lord. The angels do not venture to declare a judgment from the Lord, but they entrust the fate of demons to the Lord's judgment. End of quote. Now, here's what I see, find is so fascinating about this. Have any of you been to the movies lately? You know, I, I go to movies. I really check them out, make sure they're, they're, they're decent. And I, we, we go, my family and I, we, we go. And um, a, a few weeks ago, I was sitting in a movie theater, and I thought I was going to vomit. Because if I saw one more demonic movie being advertised, I was just going to throw up or start preaching. Right, right there on the spot. Because these, have y'all seen these scary movies? Listen, by the way, y'all, y'all know what I think about those scary movies? Don't go see them. He's ah, it's harmless, brother Danny. Those old movies, they don't. You're taking demons very unseriously. You're being just like the false teachers and the false prophets. Let me tell you, but brother Danny, I just want to go and get a. Oh, it scared me, man. That scared the heebie-jeebies out of me. Let me tell you something. Don't do that. 
Don't pay your money to go watch a show about a bunch of demons. Well, Brother Dan, those aren't demons. Those are some ghosts. Those are demons. All right? You say, is that why the house rattles and I hear voices? Yes. Yeah. You really believe that? Yeah, I do. I had a little bit of encounter with it one time overseas. I believe in that stuff, and I stay as far away from that stuff as I possibly can, and I just look at them and say, let God take care of you. I'm going to stay with Jesus. That's, that's, that's what I think you ought to do about that stuff, all right? Okay. Oh, there's a few more things I want to say, but i got to get to point number two. Here's the good news. God does judge the wicked, and we don't dispute that if we believe in the Bible. Number two, God delivers the righteous. And he gives two examples, two biblical examples. First of all, he says the example of Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, a karuks is the word. It means a proclaimer, someone who announces grand news. Can you imagine that bivocational, boat-building, preaching man, Noah? I mean, come on. There he is. Saying, hey, God's going to judge the world. And they just look at him and say, have you lost your mind? You've been building that boat over 100 years. What, what water? What rain? And they laughed him to scorn. Just like the false teachers laugh, just like some of you and just like many in our great city laugh about a future coming of Christ where they're going to be judged. And yet God says he delivered this one man, Noah, the boat builder, and he delivered his sons and his sons' daughters, I mean wives. Number two, it says he delivered a man by the name of Lot. And I don't know if y'all read this in verses 7 and 8, but God refers to Lot three times as a righteous man. I had to scratch my, scratch my theological noggin on that one. Because I'm thinking, well, Lord, the only thing I read about Lot, he wasn't, that, he wasn't that righteous. And I had misread Lot. Now, I know Lot, like Noah, they were not perfect. If you are perfect, raise your hand or raise your crutch. I'm putting mine down. Because all of us are imperfect, all right? But Lot, because... He stood against sodomy because he raised his voice against that sin in particular. God referred to him in a positive way as a righteous man. Three times referred to him. And it says they tormented his soul day in and day out with their ungodly homosexual tendencies and proclivities. And because of that, He stood against that, and he said, please, people. Did y'all read uh, Genesis 19 with me a moment ago? He says, please, I beg you, don't do this. Don't do this. And so God spared him when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And then finally, it says in verse 9 that God spares all the righteous. He punishes the wicked. Patrick Henry said, I know of no way of judging of the future, but by the past. You know, when I read this text and, and, and spent time with it and with the Lord this week, and, and by the way, we're, we're almost done. We'll, we'll get out here in just a minute. I, uh, I thought about a text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's, let's read it. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture. And it talks about how God helps us to overcome. And we don't have to succumb to the temptations of this world because it says no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with that very temptation, He will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And what He's talking about there is, yes, God will judge the wicked, but yes, God will preserve the righteous. And He will give you the wherewithal. He will give you the spiritual fortitude and strength to overcome 
He will, and look at that word deliver. I love that word, verse 10, 11. It says, and, or verse 9, and God knows how to deliver. That word also can be translated rescue, rescue. Okay, so I finished this very intense theological book this week, and i got to tell you all about it, okay? I mean, it was intense because I have to do this preparation for this systematic theology class. Does anybody, can you guess the name of this intense theological treatise? It's called The Duck Commander, all right? Woo-hoo. Duck Dynasty, baby. I read the story of the Robertson family, and I tell you, I laughed, and it was, it was a great read, and I forget who gave it to me, but thank you, and I read it, and now I'm ready to read Happy, Happy, Happy. When you read that book, you... It really all, it's all about a man named Phil. And Phil, when he was 28 years of age, he was an alcoholic. He, he was, I mean, he was a rebellious character. In fact, he told Kay, his wife, and their four sons, Willie, Jace, Alan, and the other one. I can't remember his name. <laughs> Jeff? Yeah, Jeff. He told him, he said, um, I'm leaving y'all. I won't have anything to do with you. And so he did. And a pastor... The same pastor he had already chewed out once, blessed this pastor so, went back to him and said, you may not like me, Mr. Robertson, and you may think I'm a liar, you may think I'm no good, but let me ask you a question. Do you believe this book? And he held up a Bible. And Phil Robertson fell under conviction. He says, I believe that book. And that pastor said, if, if you believe this book, then you know this is a God who loves you, but this is a God who will judge you. And he repented of his sins, was gloriously saved, Okay. I read this next story, and I thought, you got to be kidding me. But Phil Robertson, even though he was saved, he was still an interesting character, all right? He still is. Now, let me tell you a true story that happened. It talks a little bit about judgment, but here's what happened. Alan, his 17-year-old son and his buddies, uh, they were carousing, they were drinking, and they were, they were camping out. And uh, he said, well, wait a minute, Phil Robertson's a Christian, all the family's Christian. Let me tell you something. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're not going to have hard times. doesn't mean you're not going to have teenagers who are going to rebel against you. But I think this is the last time that Alan did this particular thing. Because here's how the story goes. True story. They went out banging up on uh, mailboxes. They thought that was the funniest thing in the world. Four teenagers roaring through the neighborhood, blasting out mailboxes. They went back to the campsite, drank some more, and fell asleep. Well, somebody went and told Phil. They said, Phil, I think Alan was with his boy and the boys, and they destroyed a bunch of mailboxes. He said, thank you very much. I'll take it from here. He got in his truck. He drove to the campsite. He said, Alan, get in the truck. Alan's a big boy. He's 17 years old. He said, get in the truck. You're going to get a whipping with a belt when I get you home. And his three buddies were like, like and he said, boys, if you ever want to come to my house again, you get in the truck and you're going to get a whipping too. <laughs> All four of them got in the truck. <laughs> and Phil Robertson took out his belt and whipped can I just say, whip the fire out of all four of them, one of them he didn't even know. Didn't even know who the kid was. And after he whipped him with a belt, he said, son, let me tell you something. <laughs> he said, uh, what I want you to do is I want you to go home, and I want you to tell your daddy what I did. I want you to tell your daddy why I did it, and if he's got a problem, he can come talk to me about it. I thought, you got to be kidding. Who are these people? Well, early on in their, in their story, and this is the part what I thought about, and I hope this is encouraging to you because God does deliver the righteous. 
Phil and Kay, they, their business was just getting started, and he had developed these, these duck calls, these double reed duck calls, and they were making, and by the way, they made some good money, but it wasn't until A&E came along where they made uh, boo coodles uh, of money on TV. Well, anyhow, they're doing pretty well, but early on, they weren't doing well at all. In fact, Kay, who was keeping the books, she said, Phil, she says, we're going under. There's no way we can make this $800 payment. Now, they're walking with the Lord. They love the Lord, but they're having hard times. Anybody like that today? Anybody in here today love the Lord, walking with the Lord, but things are hard right now? Can I just say welcome to the family of God? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's part of it. God never said it'd be easy. He just said, I'll help you. I'll walk with you. So Kay says, we owe $800. The bank note is due. We're going under. And Phil says, honey, go to the mailbox. Just go to the mailbox. God will provide. She said, honey, you've lost your mind. She went to the mailbox. Y'all heard stories like this. She opened up the mailbox, and there was a check from Japan. Japan for $800. The exact amount they needed to pay their bank note. And, And Willie said, We've never before or never since did business with Japan. But God rescued us and God provided for us. Can I encourage you guys with that? Yes, God will judge. He is a judging God, but he's also a God of forgiveness. And when you embrace him by faith, I tell you, it's the most awesome thing you will do. You come to Christ. You confess your sins. And you say, Lord, I'm sorry. And you say, well, what if I confess my sins and come to Christ just because I don't want to experience hell and judgment? There may be more pristine motives for being saved, but it works. It still works. Part of me coming to faith in Christ is because I believe God. I believe I have a choice, that I can embrace Christ and, and live for Him, or I can live jolly well, very well how I please, and I get to go to hell for it. And so if you're here today, and you want Christ, and you want to go to heaven, and you want to walk with Him, we invite you to come to the Lord today. But if you're here today, and you'd say, well, I'm, I tell you what, I know the Lord, I, I, I'm, I'm, I tell you, I'm saved, and, but I tell you, I'm just walking with God in a way that's not pleasing. I'm doing some things that I know is not pleasing to God, and I know God will judge me on this earth for this, and I want to ask His forgiveness. Listen, this really is a place of grace, a place where you can come and say, God, have mercy on me. And God will. He will. Finally, if you're here today, and this is not so much for our folks who are watching on TV or the Internet, but these are for our folks right here in Austin. That if you're here today and you're looking for a church home and you're looking for a place where you can come and you can serve and you can learn about God. And, and my wife and I, we were having this great theological conversation in front of the mirror this morning. And she was like, you know, I can't wait to get to church. I love going to church. I love singing God's praise, and I love because you're going to teach us something. No pressure, you know what I mean? Amen. You'll teach us something, and we'll walk away with that deeper in the Lord. I can't wait to go to Great Hills Baptist Church. Listen, that, that may be you today. You may need to come and join our church family and get involved and help us here. So let me pray for you. We'll have our invitation. And Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for the hard parts. And thank you also, Lord, that Just because it's unpalatable or spiritually unsavory, it doesn't mean it's not true. And so, Lord, we embrace the truth of Scripture. And, Lord, we ask you to give us strength to persevere in our faith. God, I pray today that you would draw some person. They may be a senior adult, Lord, on their last years of living. I pray for them, God, they would come in repentance and faith 
and be saved today. Lord, it may be a, a young married couple. It may be a single adult. It may be a, an adolescent. Lord, it may be a teenager, a student. Lord, whoever he or she is, oh, Spirit of God, would you draw them to repentance and faith. And may they embrace you before it's eternally too late. Father, I pray for the church. I pray for our church. That, God, you would continue to expand and broaden our territory. And help us, Lord, to be a radiant body of Christ that truly loves you, God, truly loves each other, and will teach and preach the Word of God and, and serve you, Lord, to the best of our ability. Lord, would you add to your, to your church here at Great Hills? And, Father, we love you so much. We thank you that you're so kind that you could have done all of this and not told us about it. But because you're so kind and you want us to know, you've told us in your word. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would move upon our service, that you would bless this invitation, for we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand up with me, please? God bless you as you come. We have counselors. We have pastors here at the front. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to encourage you. And God bless you as you come.